Uh, so I think that taking technology and starting from the place of looking at what is our current relationship with technology looking like, what's of service, what's not of service, and then setting up experiments for ourselves. Like we can see what would happen if I have to plan something out. Can I do a 20-minute work session on pen and paper and see how that feels? It doesn't mean you have to throw your laptop away and never use it again. Um, but just looking at different options um, mm. and remembering that technology is there to serve us, um, but it's also designed to pull our attention and be addictive. So we have to be careful and attentive. Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. Joining me today on the show is the Stanford teacher, researcher and meditation expert, Dr. Leah Weiss. In this episode, Leah discusses her new book, How We Work, and also how we can work with purpose in our increasingly digitized workplaces. But first of all, welcome to the show. For over three years now, we've brought you the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how you can be your best self in an increasingly digitized world. If you are new to the show, then the best place to find out much more about us is to visit digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from digital wellness to persuasive technologies, behavior design, and much, much more. Okay, enjoy the show with Dr. Leah Weiss. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. I'm really thrilled to have you on and be talking about this amazing book you've just launched. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Leah, for people that might not be familiar with your work, I wonder if you would just give us an introduction to yourself, but also because you've had such a fascinating journey to be working on mindfulness in the workplace. Tell us what led you here to your work. Mm. So... I started um, practicing mindfulness practices when I was a teenager. And uh, when I was in my 20s, I spent most of my time going back and forth between long meditation retreats and graduate school. Um, and when I finished that process, I was working on my dissertation and interviewed the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Chupin Jimpa who was starting a compassion training program at the Compassion Center at Stanford. And as I was asking him questions and he started asking me about the work that I was doing and why I was interested in this specific topic, which had not gotten a lot of uh, publicity at that point by a long stretch. And I told him that I had you know, been doing the Tibetan traditional training alongside starting this nonprofit where we were focused on professionals um, who are in high burnout work. And he invited me to come and do, um, to work with him at Stanford at C-Care and set up the teacher training program and work with people like Kelly McGonigal um, and we've been doing that now for about six years. Um, but along the way, I started teaching at the business school at Stanford, which really um, was the opportunity to develop my own curriculum 
based on the research I'd been doing and the life experience I'd been having. I had three children under five at the time and was really adamant to look directly at the question of what can we do in terms of mindfulness and compassion at work beyond telling people to take breaks to meditate. Because even if you are a card-carrying meditator, you still got to get work done and deal with that annoying coworker and, you know, power through things that you're not excited to work on. And so we need to be able to bring those skills into those contexts. So that's what my book is about. It's about the how, based on the research, and the teaching and the work I've been doing in organizations distilled into this book. Now, your new book, really, this is the thing that I wanted to focus on next, because you've written this brand new book called How We Work. And I really would love you to tell us about the book. What is it exactly about? And in particular, why would people who do work in the workplace, particularly those who aren't card carrying meditators, as you just said, why would they find it interesting? So the book distills um, how you can draw on the research and how you can make the practices of purpose and mindfulness and compassion and learning from failure um, in the form of self-compassion all an active part of your work life. Um, so the book really goes through what we know about the impact on your body, on organizations when you do uh, these practices and how you can start now in, in working on them and bringing them into your daily activities and routine. So one of the discussions that I come across a lot, um, Leah, is that mindfulness in itself, it's so flexible and that's one of its strengths that it can be applied to anything. But also one of the curses, one of the things that kind of makes it a little bit difficult to apply in people's lives is that it's so flexible and it can be applied to anything. So I'm wondering, in terms of what drew you to the topic, why the workplace in particular? Why was that arena the place where you wanted to really focus the book and your professional life on? Well, I think that the reason we need to look at this at work is fundamentally we spend 90,000 hours of our lives working. Work is the place where we are spending time in our non-chosen relationships. We spend more time with our coworkers than our families. And we have a lot of challenges there, mm -hmm. um, emotional challenges, attention challenges, um, relational challenges. And all of these are the opportunity to practice and develop the skills that mindfulness is about. And, you know, my background was as a practitioner and a historian of religions. And what I've observed in this new wave of popular mindfulness that we're in right now is an overemphasis that's actually not consistent with the tradition, an overemphasis on quiet and meditation and an underarticulation of what it looks like to be mindful and compassionate when we're challenged, when we're at the end of our rope, when we are stuck. Um, and that has traditionally always been the way that these practices have entered new cultures mm -hmm. in the context of where people are actually experiencing their challenges and stressors. 
So what I'm really looking to do in my work is reclaim um, the rest of the story that's been kind of minimized because of the romanticization, I think, of meditation mm-hmm. and this overperception that meditation is a silver bullet, that actually, you know, we need to have our organizations not be toxic. You can't tell someone to meditate their way to health in an insane situation. So you also need to have responsibility for organization, for culture, for teams, if you want to create a more mindful, compassionate world. So that's why I I picked this, because I feel like we can't continue the way that we've been approaching these questions and practices and expect um, to have the outcomes we're looking for. That 90,000 hour figure, um, that's really, that's really quite frightening and sobering. But um, I really truly understand your focus on the workplace. And certainly for me, um, and especially when I was starting out at work, I was always told that um, you can't, you have to bring your best self to work. And we're constantly under pressure to produce at the highest level in the workplace because people are afraid um, for keeping their jobs and there is that downward pressure and sometimes upward pressure to produce. And I'm wondering, is this constant need to produce? Is this what you're talking about when you're referencing toxicity in the workplace? I think the toxicity comes um, from a variety of factors. I think when people are forced to make decisions day in and day out that are at cross purposes with their conscience, I think when people are not clear about the purpose of their role, and there's amazing statistics that literally one in three people know what their job is. They can tell you what their role is and how it fits in the organization. That means two out of three people don't know what their job is. So of course they're going to be bored, disengaged, um, feel like it just doesn't matter leading to a malaise. Um, And so I think the toxicity comes in in a variety of ways when organizations are not designed for humans but the humans are spending the majority of our time in them, in roles and environments that don't consider well-being. Mm. Um, but the exciting thing is, is this is being recognized and it's being recognized by a number of companies. And, you know, I find it very interesting and promising. And I write about this in my book that, that this, the companies that are leading the way in terms of understanding healthy, sustainable work environments, physical materials, um, you know, having healthy air quality are also understanding that you need to create cultures and teams and leadership development that's humanizing and healthy um, for your own benefit, for your own retaining of employees, for your own ability to have people be engaged and work their hardest rather than disengaged and even at cross purposes with what you're trying to do. And I'm thinking that now more than ever, um, the workplace isn't just a physical office where people go to more often than not, it can just be a mobile phone or a laptop and can be wherever people are. Yes, absolutely. Well, and the toxicity, I think, can also happen when our attention is divided. So we're on a call with a number of people and we're not exactly sure what we're doing there, what the goal is. We can't really understand 
um, there's no body language or context. And a lot of people in the conversation are quote unquote multitasking or meaning they're like doing their email while they're on the call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are not conducive environments. I think there are ways for sure that we can leverage the research and create healthy relationships and work environments, even when we're remote, uh, either all or part of the time. One of the ideas that you talk about at length in the book is this whole idea of full catastrophe working. And it was something that really, um, really resonated with me. But I wonder if you would just share with us what full catastrophe working actually is and how it fits in the workplace. So what I'm arguing for in this book is that rather than taking the tactic that, you know, there's a professional version of me that's different than the real me or the other me, um, that we embrace our full humanity in the context of our role. And before you get worried, hear me out. I don't mean that we, you know, act irresponsibly, but I mean that we work in a way that acknowledges and is self-aware of our emotions, of our physicality, of our humanity and the humanity of those around us, and also is aware of when we are challenged and we need to have the skills to not only be self-aware and mindful, but we need to have communication skills so that we can be candid while being compassionate and improve our relationships so that we have the strongest, most authentic collaborations with the people we're working with. And again, this is one of these places that, you know, it's not a nice to have. This is a priority for competitive companies who want to be in the marketplace with products and services that are valuable, they need to be relying on well-functioning teams. So when we are in environments where we feel safe, you know, this comes back to the Google research on what is the secret sauce of the high-performing teams? It's psychological safety. How do you build that? People need to know what makes them feel safe and unsafe and be aware of each other's triggers and have this candid yet compassionate way of interacting. And these aren't just ideas. These are trainable skills. That's the work that I do and write about in this book. And this is based on research. These skills you can learn and you can improve and you can get better at, believe it or not, telling your boss what's not working for you. And it doesn't mean you go in and just speak off the top of your head Um, There's ways of doing it skillfully, but I can tell you based on tons of research and conversations with CEOs and leadership in Fortune 500 companies that this is what people are actually looking for. You know, when I have CEOs into my class at Stanford and talk to them about what what is it about your top employees, and it's that they take responsibility, they give candid feedback, they take those risks. So while it might sound intimidating to people who aren't used to it, this is what people are learning in the top management programs like Stanford, like Harvard, like Yale. And it would be useful for you to pick these up and work on them yourselves. And you don't have to get an MBA to do it. I'm trying to show the practicality of how you do it in this book and the how we work. So Leo, from reading the book, 
it's obvious that there's just been so much research that's gone into it. There are just thousands of references. But I'm wondering just how much of the conclusions you came to in the book came from your own experience. It comes from um, a lot of teaching and feedback from students, um, you know, hundreds, thousands of students, both in the business school, but also in organizations um, Mm -hmm. that I've done work with and their experiences, um, which I view as part of the research process that, um, you know, taking tools that are derived from research and then making sure that they really work for people and have the intended outcomes and then give you them the understanding of what's underneath it and why so that they have the ability to modify to fit their lives and their needs and their interests. One of the phrases that you mentioned earlier, which was beyond meditation and really applying those skills of mindfulness to the workplace, that was something, again, that, that you mentioned that really resonated with me. And I think it's just incredibly important. But I also wanted to touch on this whole idea of, again, beyond meditation, but also the full catastrophe working, particularly for people who do experience the blending of the workplace in ho- at home, in the work, you know, in the actual office, in cafes, etc. Because the way we work now is so fluid, we can work from anywhere with our devices and with these digital systems. But Leah, what's the extent to which you think that people can have full catastrophe work in, that they can bring their full selves to work when we are being pulled in lots of different directions from um, by digital devices and services that want our attention all the time, from the emails that come in to the phones that ring to the other notifications that pop up. How do we experience full catastrophe working in a hyperconnected age? I mean, I would actually frame it that we must more than ever bring our full selves because we are constantly being tugged at by a million different forces. Mm. Now more than ever, we have to take responsibility for training our mental game. And if we don't, then we are never going to be productive because we're constant. Our, our world is set up to be pulling our attention all over the place. The only way to counter that is to have clarity and purpose and training in the uh, intentional use of attention, which is the definition of mindfulness, as you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, when I hear people say, oh, we can't afford to do this, you actually can't afford to not do this as an individual or an organization. And here's some interesting research behind this. So the Wall Street Journal did interviews of, I think it was 900 900 executives um, and asked them questions around talent in their organizations. And one of the questions they asked is, which is more important, soft skills or hard skills, meaning technical skills or emotional intelligence, people skills. Um, And unequivocally, 90% said that the soft skills are just as, if not more important. And this is the kicker, 89% said that they are having real trouble finding candidates with those skills. 
So I think that anybody listening to this should take pause. And I hear this echoed all the time in HR and executive leadership work that I'm doing, that there is perceived to be a real shortage of talent. And I think the other thing that we have to realize is that technical skills are changing so rapidly. So what I'm increasingly seeing is my students are recognizing, look, I could spend my time, my precious two years in my MBA, which by the way, is extremely expensive and a big investment. I could spend that time learning technical skills that are going to be outdated as soon as I enter the workforce. Or I can spend the time developing the mental resilience, the mental training, the management interpersonal skills that will last me the rest of my life, and also know that I will continually need to update my learning on the technical skills. And that is absolutely, the I think, the much more accurate and helpful perspective to take, that you don't have time to not pursue. <laughs> you can't <laughs> not not <laughs> do this. Um, so I, I think, that, and I think that is increasingly recognized by the top universities. That's why the Stanford's, the Harvard's, the Columbia's, the Yale business schools are holding these classes that are wildly popular. My class always has wait lists and people who can't get into them. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because they recognize that these are the skills that are going to be the most important to them when they get back in the workforce. And that's, that's I think, the key. One of the chapters that really jumped out at me in reading your book was the whole section on purpose. And you mentioned in the book that it's so important for people to find their purpose in the workplace because this leads to a much more fulfilling and productive work life. But I'm thinking that some of the criticism that might come from this or some of the pushback from people might be that, oh, finding your purpose, isn't that a bit um, out there? Isn't that something that kids are meant to do when they leave college but what you really do is to break down um, the importance of finding your workplace psychologically but also how it has incredibly important physiological effects on us so I wonder if you just spend some time and talk to us about the importance of finding your purpose in the workplace absolutely well I think that you know one of the things to start with is there is unequivocally a crisis of engagement in the workplace. You can look at any of the Gallup research and a multitude of other research. And what we see is that disengagement in the workplace is at an all-time high. That isn't only a problem for the employee who's disengaged. That's a huge, huge expense, billions of dollars a year for organizations who have employees who are wasting time because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So we have to realize that, you know, purpose is something that's not a nice to have. It's an organizational imperative. If you can't be clear, not only externally to your customers, what you're doing and why you're creating value, you also have to be able to be doing that with your employees. And that's going to be the key to your success. And when you see these amazingly high-performing companies, they have compelling narratives, not just with data, but with actual personalized meaning-making for their employees. People are invested in their work. So I think, you know, recognizing that that's something that you need to have, 
Um, otherwise, your employees, not only are they wasting time, they're more likely to be sick with you know, their absenteeism or presenteeism, which is increasingly a, a concern. So people are there physically, but not so much mentally. Um, and then they hop jobs because they're not loyal. They don't care. Um, so given this, it's important for the organization. It's important for the individual we there's fascinating research and um i i try to give access to it in my book but we get all kinds of physical benefits when we are living purposeful lives we have higher resistance to illness we have lower inflammation purpose is something that when we have a strong sense of purpose we sleep better our insulin response is better. We have lower rates of all kinds of chronic illness. Um, and then that's not even talking about the mental health benefits um, mm. that it wards off depression and anxiety. It gives us more resilience because if we're oriented towards something that we care about, when we hit inevitable setback, we pick ourselves up and we and we move forward. Um, so purpose is a key based on research for resilience. Um, so it's physically, psychologically, organizationally something that is vital. And I'm increasingly, again, seeing this with organizations that are the innovators or that are the ones um, that are providing real value across sectors, whether it's you know, finance or tech or healthcare or education, um, the companies that are investing in purpose are seeing real returns on that investment in terms of the bottom line. I think that's such an important thing that you've just said, the whole idea that purposeful organizations and purposeful people um, are much more productive and end up being much happier over the long term um, than people who are not. One of the things you talk about in the book was it was a whole difference of people that or companies that tend to pursue pleasure rather than meaning and that the people that do pursue pleasure or good feelings ultimately tend to experience more troughs and peaks um, in their emotional state. They tend to be it tend to be more affected by the inevitable downsides and insults that would happen over the course of their lives than people that pursue meaning so the whole idea that um, people that are purposeful that do pursue meaning um, aren't necessarily don't necessarily feel good all the time but they will ultimately attain that happiness and I started then to think about how you can apply that to the digital realm and and I know for myself when I'm much more purposeful about the way that I go about my digital life, um, that ends up being um, a much, much better experience for me, both me and for my colleagues as well. So I think that um, everything you write about purpose in the workplace can also be applied in the digital realm. That was just mm, my... I'm so glad to hear that that resonates with you. And, you know, I think it's, it's really vindicating for a lot of us when we have this intuition that purpose is important, but that's, you know, kind of minimized um, as we get older and we enter the workforce. And I think it's really, really helpful to realize um, that our bodies and our minds are, we require, we are purpose-driven creatures. Um, and I think that that's actually 
a relief. <laughs> you know, it is to me to realize that, that it's, it's something that we need as human beings. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that then the question just becomes, how do we do it? How do we do it better across the lifespan and in our early education and in our organizations and in our parenting, all of these things? I, I think it's a really exciting opportunity. And I think there's some amazing, amazing researchers who are pioneering all kinds of ways of increasing purpose and and looking into what works well for different populations that we're just going to be seeing this work explode, I feel, in the next Mm. few years as it's been doing in the last five or ten. Mm. One of the other fascinating things you spoke about was the work by your colleague Alia Krum, and particularly, I think it's about the impact of the placebo effect on mindset and how that can really help us, how we can affect our own mindset to increase our own sense of purpose. Yes, her work has just been incredible in demonstrating how we can leverage the placebo effect and be more intentional about our mindsets and how that impacts our bodies. That when we you know, tell ourselves um, that, you know, some of her research is comparing how we metabolize milkshakes. Um, If you tell one half of the group that this is an indulgent high calorie drink and you tell another half of the group this is nutritious, low calorie, healthful drink, their bodies will respond to the same exact milkshake depending on the belief they have about it. And this goes on and on, this kind of um, research. And she's doing such interesting things looking at, well, how do we, the messaging and the mindset that we bring to our jobs, how can those support our health and well-being? I think it's, it's truly fascinating. Wow. So one of the ways, Lee, you talk about um, bringing your full self to work and by finding your purpose is by becoming unstuck. And I think that for some people, that phrase might be um, a bit loaded or a bit vague. So I wonder if you can just talk to people about what being stuck actually is. And if we could also give us some tips on how to move beyond that state for people that might find themselves in there. Yeah, I think, you know, using the framework of experimentation is immensely helpful when we are feeling stuck. Um, and often we are looking at if the world is split into things we can change, things we can influence, and things that we really cannot change, we need to direct our attention towards the things we can change and influence when we're feeling stuck. But often as a stress response, we end up recycling thoughts about the things that are out of our control. And then within the domains that we can control and we can influence, setting up small things that we can do, um, small challenges for ourselves. Like if we feel stuck in our job or like a relationship at work is, is just deteriorating, um, taking a bite-sized um, experiment for that. So, you know, what would it mean to... Um, approach that coworker we've been struggling with just casually and in, in, in a different way 
and or what and ask them how they're doing or even mentally before we're engaging with them um, thinking about wow this person has a family and they're providing for them and they have a whole backstory I'll never know um, and just trying to humanize them you know can help us get unstuck in these irritable excuse me, can help us get unstuck in these irretractable kinds of situations. Or when we're trying to look for, we feel like our job's not a, a good fit. Taking the small baby steps towards having coffee with people who are doing something similar to what we think we might want to move towards. Like break it down into things that we can start to do today to get ourselves out of feeling paralyzed or stuck. So my penultimate question is, Leah, what role do you think that technology can play in helping people to bring their full selves to work, to achieving that full catastrophe workplace, as you write about? So I I use um, technology in a way that I'm increasingly trying to be strategic and intentional about it. So you know, some, I have my patterns of work, like where I'll set timers for myself and do a 20 minute or 25 minute focused session of work with a small break. Um, I use my calendar and reminders to intersperse rituals for myself throughout the day that support mindfulness and being present and, and remembering my purpose. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people returning to pen and paper um, for at least some of their activities. And I think that there's really great research supporting the fact that we retain more and we can be more creative um, using the old school implements. Uh, so I think that taking technology and starting from the place of looking at what is our current relationship with technology looking like, what's of service, what's not of service, and then setting up experiments for ourselves. Like we can see what would happen if I have to plan something out. Can I do a 20 minute work session on pen and paper and see how that feels? It doesn't mean you have to throw your laptop away and never use it again. Um, but just looking at different options um, mm -hmm. and remembering that technology is there to serve us, um, but it's also designed to pull our attention and be addictive. So we have to be careful and attentive. So Leah, unfortunately, we've come to the end. Where can people connect with you and find out more about your work and more importantly, buy the book? Uh, my website is the best resource. Um, I have all of my research, a number of articles. Um, I send out a newsletter with um, giving nuggets from current research. And you can also see all kinds of options for buying the book and other content. Um, options that I create depending on your problem, like creating more mindful meetings or um, what all you can see a variety of resources on the site. And that's leahweissphd.com. Fantastic. Well, Leah, it's been a complete pleasure spending time with you today and learning so much more about how we can apply these really powerful mindfulness practices to making our workplaces better. So thank you for your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.